Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Passionate Love. It's a guest essay by Mary Graves, senior pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in San Carlos, California. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March 21st, 2010, the fifth Sunday in Lent. We all know how important it is to have friends. Jesus had some very close friends who were not among the twelve disciples. They were Lazarus and his two sisters Mary and Martha. They were such close friends of Jesus that when Lazarus became seriously ill, Martha and Mary sent an urgent message to Jesus telling him, Come quick, the one you love is sick. When Jesus did did show up, both Mary and Martha at different times went to him and said, You know, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus told them what he told his disciples the first moment he heard that Lazarus was sick. This situation is going to reveal the glory of God. The story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus, which is told in John 11, is, as Jesus said, a sign story. Even though this story is about Lazarus, the story points beyond itself to Jesus' death and resurrection. This is what sign stories do. They point beyond themselves to tell us deep things about God. That is what Passover does for the Jews. That is what communion does as a sign story for Christians pointing beyond itself. And that's what the Gospel from John 12 for this week does. It's a simple story. A dinner in the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Several of Jesus' disciples are there. They are having this dinner party in honor of Jesus, probably to celebrate all that he did for Lazarus and his family. It was customary in that time and geographical area when you hosted a dinner to wash the feet of your guests. <coughs> Walking was their main mode of travel, of course. Walking in sandals or barefoot, and their feet needed cleansing and refreshment. And so Mary washes Jesus' feet. But John makes it clear, as does Jesus, that this is more than just a dinner. What Mary does is more than just a foot washing. What she does is a sign which points beyond itself to reveal something important about what God is doing in Jesus. Passover is near. Good Friday is near. The crucifixion is near. Jesus already told his disciples that this was coming. He told them many times the Son of Man will be killed by the religious leaders and raised on the third day. But they didn't understand the significance of what he was telling them. They didn't see Jesus' passion and where God's love was taking him. Like Judas, they only saw on the surface. He looked at what Mary did and said, What a ridiculous waste. Why wasn't this perfume sold and given to the poor? From here on out, the rest of the Gospel of John, chapters 13 to 21, are about Jesus' passion. 
This section of John's Gospel is called the Book of Jesus' Passion. It's not just another tragic story of a great leader getting murdered. It's about God's passion. It's about God's love. So John places this important sign story right here, hoping that we won't miss the significance of what's coming. John gives us this story as we journey into Holy Week. Look deeply into the story of Mary's passionate act. It's a sign story taking us deeper into the reality of God's passionate love for us in Jesus. This very simple drama in John does that. It takes us beyond the surface pieces to the passion of Jesus. And so we're invited to take a closer look and ask, what's happening here? After all that happened to Lazarus, you can imagine how much it meant to his family to have Jesus in their home now to serve him. When Mary bent down to do the customary washing of feet, she took this outrageously expensive vial of perfume that could have been a family treasure. She broke the alabaster neck and poured it onto the feet of Jesus and the whole house was filled with the powerful aroma. What Mary did was beyond extravagant. It was this outpouring of love and gratitude that knew no bounds. She loved and appreciated Jesus so much, and sometimes when you really love and appreciate somebody, you can't do enough to let them know it. I think it's important as we look deeply into this story to acknowledge that there are definite sexual overtones to what Mary did. I'm amazed that the commentaries that I read didn't bring any attention to this at all. Maybe they were afraid to, but this scene is loaded with sexual overtones. First of all, Jesus and Mary are both single adults of marriageable age and available. That automatically creates a dynamic right there. As you know, there are many ways to be sexual with one another that are not about sexual intercourse or pursuing sexual intercourse. Just take a, just, just a look or a touch that isn't overtly sexual can be because we are sexual beings and never stop being a sexual being. When Jesus arrived at the house for dinner, Mary went to him with his family treasure in her hand and this deep love in her heart. Once he was seated, she bent down and took his dirty and tired feet into her hands. She touched them and washed them and massaged them in a way that communicated the esteemed place of honor he held in her heart and in this family. Then she broke open the flask and poured this fragrant ointment on his feet. Everybody in the room immediately was filled and moved by the fragrance of it. Then she loosened her hair and let it fall to her shoulders. She bent low to the floor with her face on the ground so that she could wipe Jesus' feet with the looseness of her long hair. The scene is charged with passionate love. But this scene isn't really about Mary. It points beyond itself to Jesus and his passionate love. What Mary does here is a passionate act, and it points beyond her to the rest of what is going on to unfold for Jesus. 
He's going to bend down to serve his own disciples. He's going to take the greatest family treasure he owns, his own life, break the neck of the flask of his own life blood because of God's great love and passion for you and me. Jesus is going to make himself completely vulnerable, stripped naked, nailed to a cross. He will become one with our own nakedness and our humility on the cross. And out of that passionate act will come the miracle of new life that will never end. His death will look like a complete waste of a good life. But this story of Mary tells us differently. Jesus' journey to the cross is the greatest act of self-giving intimate love ever. And out of it, God gives us the miracle of new life. Passover is near. Holy Week is coming. What will we see? What will you see? Hopefully through these sign stories, we will see the passionate love of God. Through the sign story of Lazarus' death and resurrection. Through the sign story of the Passover. Through the sign story of the Lord's Supper. Through the sign story of Mary's passionate act of love. The whole house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. And may the whole church, in your whole journey this Holy Week, be filled with the fragrance of God's passionate love for you. Passionate Love, a guest essay by Mary Graves, Senior Pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church, in San Carlos. For books this week, I review a title called Is God a Mathematician? The author is Mario Livio, New York, Simon & Schuster, 2009, 308 pages. My high school algebra teacher, Mr. Hamilton, did his best, but math has never been one of my strengths. My wife and I joke that we helped our kids with their math homework until the numbers dropped out. But even though I didn't understand much of Mario Livio's book, I still enjoyed it. Livio is a senior astrophysicist and head of the Office of Public Outreach at the Hubble Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. His several books that have popularized difficult issues of math and science have won numerous awards. Livio begins with a simple but profound question. Why is math so successful in explaining the world? There is a mystery in the omnipresence and omnipotent powers of mathematics, says Livio, most famously expressed by the Nobel laureate Eugene Wigner, who spoke of the, quote, unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics, end quote. This book, then, is not really about God or religion, but about Wigner's conundrum. Why does math, which is a product of our human minds and independent of experience, so perfectly describe the physical world? Consider its power of prediction to tell us exactly when and where a comet will appear a thousand years from now. 
The physical world seems to obey these mathematical laws. Our human brains are themselves physical organs, and yet we perceive and understand the world of math. Is math then something that human beings have merely invented, an arbitrary and artificial construction? Or is it something embedded in reality that we discover? Invention or discovery? If aliens from another world visited Earth, would they, for example, by necessity have to use our mathematics to describe all reality? After an introductory chapter, Livio explores the history and nature of math in three chapters about six thinkers, Pythagoras and Plato, Archimedes and Galileo, and then Descartes and Isaac Newton. Math, it seems, is the very grammar of the universe and reality itself. Its practical applications are almost endless from the architecture of the Egyptian pyramids to describing the ocean tides, planetary orbits, stock market behavior, the, the statistical distribution of batting averages, casino gambling, population genetics, linguistics, the arcane field of knot theory, and on and on. After presenting the idea that math appears to be discovered and not merely invented, in his later chapters, Livio explores the opposite position, called formalism, that math, as Poincaré put it, is merely definitions in disguise. But by the end of the book, he suggests that we might be asking the wrong question, and that there are elements of both invention and discovery. Either way, Livio's book does a marvelous job explaining the sheer power and beauty of math which must indeed be part of the mind of God. Mario Livio, is God a mathematician? For film this week, I review a documentary movie called The Cove. 2009. Taiji is a little town in Japan with a big bad secret. So says renegade activist Rick O'Berry. Taiji is the world's largest supplier of dolphins. In a secret cove there is the site of an unimaginable dolphin slaughter year after year. A live dolphin for an amusement park can fetch $150,000. The dead dolphins are marketed as whale meat despite their high levels of mercury poisoning. Watch this film, and if you can bear to watch it, you'll see Taiji's cove turn a bloody red. Rick O'Berry knows what he's talking about. When he captured and trained the five dolphins who played Flipper way back in 1964, he became the world's most famous dolphin trainer. But about, but about ten years after that, when one of those dolphins died in his arms, he had a change of heart and devoted the next 35 years to protecting dolphins. This documentary film shows how a team that O'Berry assembled went to extraordinary lengths to go deep undercover and record the slaughter of dolphins with hydrophones and camel, 
cameras, both thermal and underwater. Going to SeaWorld will never be the same, nor should it. The Cove was nominated for an Academy Award as Best Documentary Film. The title of the film, The Cove, from 2009. And finally, for this fifth week in Lent, it's St. Patrick's Day on Wednesday. And so for poetry, we've posted the prayer of St. Patrick. St. Patrick lived in the fifth century. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth and his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion and burial, through the strength of his resurrection and ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. I arise today through the strength of the love of cherubim, in obedience of angels, in service of archangels, in the hope of resurrection to meet with reward, in the prayers of patriarchs, in preachings of the apostles, in faiths of confessors, in innocence of virgins, in deeds of righteous men. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of sun, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of the wind, depth of the sea, stability of the rock, firmness of the rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's hosts to save me, from snares of the devil, from temptations of vices, from everyone who desires me ill, afar and anear, alone or in a multitude. I summon today all these powers between me and evil, and every cruel, merciless power that opposes my body and soul, against incantations of false prophets, against black laws of pagandom, against false laws of heretics, against craft of idolatry, against spells of women and smiths and wizards, against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. Christ shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that reward may come to me in abundance. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, 
Christ when I sit down. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me. Christ in the eye that sees me. Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through a confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 21st, 2010, the fifth Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.